0: In 2007, Michael Lewis popularized the idea of blind spots in a best-selling book called The Blind Side. In it, he picked up on the blind areas of sight, where the quarterback in the football game can't see the tackle spot behind him, the car driver that misses the elusive spot in the rearview mirror, or life decisions that we waffle on because there's a strong element of the unknown. Most people see the blind spots as a deficiency. It's a gap where mistakes or car crashes can happen. But what if we reframed our thinking and we saw blind spots as opportunities? What if they helped nudge us to take chances that we wouldn't normally take? What if they were silver linings? I realized that blind spots played a pivotal role in some of the best events and people that I've known in my life over the last decade. I'd like to share three examples where the curveballs balls from these blind spots brought unexpected happiness and transformation. The pain involved in each of them helped me to evolve as a human being and to discover the gratitude and the blessings that we often take for granted. My name is Rose McInerney, and this very personal episode of Sipping on Stories, my dear friends, is my story. Welcome to Sippin' Own Stories, where we take you into the lives of diverse and unique change makers who turn anxiety, fear, and passion into powerful recipes for success. Good stories build insightful connections, but great stories. Now, that's something special. Today's story is one of those stories. Welcome back to Sipping on Stories. Hi, everyone. So you always know me as your podcast host and not the interviewee. But as I walk this podcast journey with my creative team, I thought it might be time to let you in on who I am. Of course, the first episode shares a little bit of the highlights, a few things about me that are really the essence of the podcast and what it's about how we can harness positive change in each of our lives as well as the world. Honesty and truth are everything, so today I'll share mine. Don't worry about me being a big puddle of blubbering tears, shamelessly tapping your emotions. I'm going to keep it together and I'm gonna keep it as straight as I can. So speaking of straight, we need to do two things before I start. The first is all on you. Please hit that subscribe button if you like what you hear today. Head over to Sipping on Stories, our website, where you can learn more about our featured guests. You can watch our interviews on the site, you can listen to them on your favorite podcast player, or you can visit us on YouTube. The second thing I'm going to do is to pour myself a straight-up drink. Nothing fancy. It's a shot of Irish whiskey today. I hope you'll join me in sipping on something. It doesn't really matter what it is. It could be coffee or tea or one of those fancy alcohol-free cocktails that everyone seems to be sipping on these days. But maybe it's also a nip of something with a little dab of alcohol. Typically, my day starts with a fresh cup of joe. I often tease my husband about my love affair with joe, even though I do like the occasional glass of wine or a shot of whiskey done neat. So before we head down this rabbit hole today, because it's a deep one for me. I'm going to ask you to raise your mug or your glass and to toast my son, my brother, and my father. May they rest in peace, and may the best day of your past be the worst day of your future. Cheers. As for my listeners... I also want you to know that I'm dedicating this episode to anyone out there who has lost a child, a sibling, or a parent. All right, so here we go on to the good stuff. We're talking pain today. (laughs) Nobody really wants it, but it's both inevitable and transformative. Pain and suffering have helped me to grow in countless ways that make me feel more alive, more centered in God and faith, and also more enlightened about my purpose. You know, that little thing like, what are we doing here on earth? So let's jump into the blind side of suffering. I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of three phone calls and the number 13. Thursday, September 13th, 2012. This is the first event that blindsided me. It was after 5 p.m. and I was in the laundry room folding clothes. At the time, I lived in Chicago with my husband and youngest daughter, Kelly. She was still in high school and grudgingly left her two sisters and her brother Marcus back east where they were all enrolled in college. Our apartment was a mess. We had plastic sheets that were hanging everywhere. The walls were ripped. We were renovating the place. The building that we lived at at that time was um, really more than a century old, so we were opening up a few walls and giving it kind of a little gloss over. This wasn't a good time to be doing anything of any other stress, and it certainly left no room for death when the phone call came that day. The voice calling said, Are you sitting down, Rose? I have something to tell you. These are the kinds of scenes you see on TV. As I started to ask what was happening, he just blurted it out. There's no good way. Marcus is gone. The next few minutes were a mix of me not understanding what he was saying. My hands were shaking, and then I saw myself falling to the floor, sobbing uncontrollably. The phone slid from my hands, and it landed on the cold, white-tiled floor as the muffled sounds of consolation on the other end of the phone just—they fell away. When I finally stopped crying, I stood up, and I began to take those first few steps— of the many steps on a long journey through grief. If anyone had ever told me that the death of our adopted son, Marcus, would ever be anything but painful, I think I would have slapped them silly. Really, it's not that I'm a woman of any kind of violence, but I was angry. I was really angry with God for letting a young man like Marcus die when he was just finally coming into his own life and his own self. Marcus's backstory is a long one. It's one that I hope to finish writing someday, but I'll give you a little bit in a nutshell. It's a little like the Michael Lewis book, except that I'm certainly not Sandra Bullock, and the hero of that story didn't die. Marcus came to us at the age of 16. He was homeless and broken in many ways, but we took a chance on him. We took a chance on those soft, wide eyes, the curly brown hair, and the shy disposition. It was all enough to melt any mother's heart. Picture Harry Belafonte, for those of you at a certain age. Had we known Marcus's full history, his gang affiliations, and the people who had told us not to take him into our family, we probably could have saved ourselves a lot of anguish, time, and frustration. A lot of pain. But walking away from this beautiful young man, would have meant the loss of a community of angels who became great friends of ours. We wouldn't have had any of those Friday football games, there would have been less family fun time, and there would have been less family bonding that drew us all together. He was the big brother that watched out for the girls. Our lives were so much happier from his laughter and the learning and the kind nature that he had. Marcus was just such a smart kid who just needed stability and support. Marcus blossomed when he joined our family, and he introduced us to the stories of other kids who suffered because they were born into a challenging zip code that was tied really to poverty and a lack of opportunity. Marcus's kindness and love for others was hidden behind the face of a sad boy who told me that once he had asked God why he would let anyone— struggle with what he had struggled with? Why is it that some people live in big houses while others go hungry and they're sad every day? Marcus and I had a lot of those conversations. His death was ruled an accidental shooting. Back home in Connecticut, the police didn't expect to see two white parents show up at their station and to start asking questions the day that we flew home. The news reported his death as an accidental shooting less than 24 hours after the police seemed to have wrapped up the case. They said Marcus shot himself while joking around with two other boys in a room, that Marcus had thought the gun he owned wasn't loaded. But we knew something was wrong. Marcus would never forget to check all the chambers of a gun. No West Point cadet would. Marcus had known how to handle a gun from the time he was 12 and running with a gang. He could load and unload a Glock pistol with one hand and his eyes closed. So that made us wonder, well, maybe he had committed suicide. Maybe there were things we didn't know. But the scene and the circumstances of his life didn't point that way either. We just had these suspicions that maybe the police had handled the crime scene wrong. Maybe they had missed something. We assumed that there might have been something else. So I think that they assumed, and and we came to believe that They assumed he was just another black kid. Remember at this time in 2012, in April, the Trayvon Martin case had happened. So here we were, this this white couple showing up. I don't know if I forgot to mention it, but uh, Marcus was black. And we started asking questions. This triggered a kind of a song and dance show by the police. We hired a PI and we started to seek the advice of detectives in Canada because we're Canadian born. The more we looked into Marcus's death, the more problematic it became. We might never know all the details, but different things did surface. The furniture was removed hours after the shooting. There were no shell casings, no bullet holes at the scene. There was no gunshot residue on Marcus's hands. A million things didn't add up. So you can imagine the frustration Marcus had become a local sports hero and he had earned a football scholarship to West Point. Hundreds of friends and teachers and coaches lined the streets around the funeral home for hours just to say goodbye to Marcus. The blind spot changed and we realized that we had a powerful role that we could play here. We could follow down this course of questioning police or we could turn our grief into something better, spend our money on something that honored Marcus's life, something that helped us to remember him every single year, and also to remember that life is temporary and it's very fragile. Marcus for Change is now an annual fundraiser that our family does. We raise money for underserved kids. It fills the hole in our hearts and the gap for more kids like Marcus to realize their dreams. Down the road, I'll talk more about him, but for now, it's enough for me to know that because he lived, we lived better. The second phone call came four years later on November 13th, 2016. More death. My youngest brother Paul from Toronto had called to tell me that Tom had died. Tom was my Irish twin, and apparently he had committed suicide. This came out of nowhere. It blindsided us again. He was a beloved paramedic and a friend to anyone in need. He always had a kind word and a shirt to give. For those who don't know what an Irish twin is, it's a sibling born less than 12 months apart. Tom and I were 10 months apart. As a kid, Tom always protected me. When one of the kids who attended a public school started bullying me and my sister as we used to walk to school each day, we attended a Catholic elementary school that was in the opposite direction of kids going to the public school. I told my brother Tom about it one day, and you know what? He just quietly put an end to that. I remember, though, my father telling us a similar kind of story when we were growing up. He was a green kid. A Catholic, and he used to pass the orange kids on the streets, the Protestants in Toronto. There were all kinds of fights. I guess that cultural and racial divides are tough cycles to break. On hearing the news about Tom, I hopped in the car and I drove to Toronto as fast as I could. I was shocked and angry again. Tom's two children needed their dad. How could he do this? They were about to graduate from college programs. My last words to Tom had not been good. They had been tough words. He was struggling with debt and broken relationships. But this is also my first time hearing this four-letter word that changed my understanding of Tom's death. PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Many first responders like police and doctors and veterans of war are traumatized by what they see and they hold on to the grief, the what-ifs, and the images for years. Left untreated... PTSD can be debilitating. This tragedy pulled my family apart, and yet it pulled them together. Once again, the community was there for us. This time it was in Toronto. People came out to salute my brother in the same way they had for Marcus. The church service for Tom was packed with friends and people he had known over the years and helped—teachers, police, medical practitioners— It's really funny because my family coat of arms means dedication and service to others. Tom certainly espoused that. He was a sweet, fair-haired boy that I remember growing up with who loved to draw, play the guitar, and help others in need. I don't know if I'll ever really understand this death either. This time what I do know is that I traded the anger that I had for Marcus's death with a sense of guilt. I started to think about should have, could have, would have. What if I had said something different to Tom before he passed away? But three years later, an opportunity to do an Arctic trek to raise money for veterans who suffered from PTSD appeared out of nowhere. It was a hundred kilometer journey across Baffin Island on the Ashutuk Pass. That's when I realized my grief had come full circle. I had the opportunity to learn more about PTSD and first responders like Tom. This changed my understanding and my life. Were it not for Tom's death, I'm sure that I never would have signed up for that trip. I don't think I would have had the courage to go. And the strange thing is that really over time, I've learned to see that even in this COVID period, how important it is for us to have courage. So on this trip to the Arctic, we escaped to the isolation of Nunavut. It's one of the territories where our native Canadians live. And it gave me a chance to commune with nature, really, and to meet people that lived in another part of Canada that I knew nothing about, but also to travel with veterans that suffered from post-traumatic stress. I got a chance to spend two weeks, the frigid cold, in pristine, untouched, and majestic landscapes, They were the most beautiful I've ever seen. Both Tom and Marcus's deaths showed me not only the power of community and the healing that comes from forgiveness and letting go, but also the possibilities of what exists after. The friends and the experience of this trip empowered me to believe I could do anything. The harshest conditions of the cold didn't matter, and my ability to endure was everything. It just unfolded before me. This led to phone call number three. It happened much faster in March of 2020. So I completed the trip to the Arctic in 2019. But this ignited some kind of fire in me, and I wanted to start testing myself. And I became committed to the idea of doing an adventure every year. This time, our small group of explorers that had done the Arctic were interested in climbing Kilimanjaro. Things didn't work out so well, unfortunately, for one of my brave Wonder Woman sisters, Rita, who organized the trip. She and one of my other friends, Erica, whose mother was moved to palliative care, had to drop out. This meant that my friend Cindy and I were really the only last two remaining. Were we willing to go ahead and try to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, one of the seven highest summits of the world? We knew it was going to be physically challenging, but again... I was a different person. I knew that mentally I had the resolve to do whatever it took to get to the top. Every time the climb felt too tough or I wanted to turn back, I thought of Marcus and Tom. I climbed for them and for another special young girl in her family who I had met while planning my climb. Little Ava suffers from Rett syndrome, so we decided that we would raise money for Ava, and this carried me to the top of the hill as well. I harnessed the mental anguish and the support of a community to drive away any doubt that I had. My blind side became my strength, not knowing if I could conquer a challenge, but going for it anyway. It gave rise to the confidence that I have today. I had discovered my new superpower. The pain and loss in my life had become a gift. It had become a gift of gratitude and the promise of happiness that could follow. So when it was time to fly home from Tanzania, I was headed for the last leg of my journey. I was the one this time that made the painful phone call. My father's health was failing, so I called my brother to see how he was doing when we had a, a stopover in Frankfurt. When I spoke to Jim during this conversation, he told me to get home as fast as I could. I think Dad's waiting for you, Jim said. My father suffered from dementia, so the last few years had been difficult for him. We had moved him to a full-time care facility, but just after I had left for Kilimanjaro, I had this sense that his health was failing quickly. Seeing his emaciated body as I rushed from the airport to his bedside, I knew my dad's time was short. My father had always been larger than life and uncompromising in his convictions and boundless energy. So it was hard to see him in this fragile state. When I grabbed his hand, Something in me told me that he would will his eyes open, and he did. They had been closed for days, so I don't know. Maybe it was the sound of my voice that drew him back. When he did open his eyes, I saw this bright blue (laughs) kind of emptiness. I don't know. It broke my heart. I knew that he longed to go home to God, and when he closed his eyes for the last time and he took his final breath... It was Tuesday, March the 13th. I could almost hear the words when his soul slipped away, the words that he had waited a lifetime to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Within hours of his death, COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic on the 13th of March, and countries quickly started closing their borders. Now the race was on to give my father a proper burial because he was such a religious man. We wanted him to have a funeral mass, but we knew we also had to race back to get across the U.S. border and home to where our family was on the other side. Despite a few tense moments, though, it all worked out, and I was at peace this time. There wasn't any guilt. There wasn't any anger or resentment. I felt good knowing my father wasn't going to suffer the loneliness that all of us have seen with COVID and the effect on nursing homes. Looking back at all of these moments, I see nothing but gratitude. It's not about grief anymore. Yes, we've all been locked down, knocked down, and shut out of work. American businesses have closed their doors and the painful plight of many families who are worried about how to put food on the table and pay for their rent is getting worse. Yes, we have great division in the U.S. and around the world, and I find myself unable to watch the news for longer than a few minutes at a time anymore. I don't need to be told just how bad it is out there. I need hope. I want hope. I want people to see the blind side now. Now is the time more than ever. I want them to see that we've risen before and we will rise again if we don't take our democracy for granted. Resist. Resist the great reset. The only great reset we need right now is to be courageous, to be resilient, and to support each other. Anger and resentment fester. I've seen that personally, and I hate watching it in the country where I live in the country that I love. See the blind side in our unrest and our chaos, and do not rush in and embrace the collapse that our politicians, our news channels, and our powerful elite are pushing. Let pain stir your soul. Hear that voice in your heart that says, "We are meant for more." We are meant to love each other and to live a glorious life filled with pain and happiness. Before I sign off, I want to thank you for listening today. And there's something I've got to tell you that surprised me. I discovered that the number 13 is actually a lucky number in the Bible. Biblical scholars say it represents great promise and blessings. Three phone calls all associated with the 13th day. Promise blessings. As I do this final salute, you should know that you are loved and you matter. Take a big sip out of life. It's the only one you've got right here and right now. We at Sipping on Stories, thank you for listening and for subscribing to this podcast. And we wish you a happy, happy Thanksgiving. That's a wrap a story